from darkness unto light lead us from death to immortality om peace 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 good morning and namaste everybody we started with a hymn to shri ramachandra because it's ram navami today it's also palm sunday so it's the holy week which culminates with Uh, Easter. Um, so, first of all, it's good to be back. I was away on a month-long <laughs> trip in India after more than four years, and I had thought that I'll, it'll be a sort of a change, a break, a bit of a restful time. I had four or five lectures scheduled, but quickly all the gaps got filled up, and I ended up giving some twenty-six or twenty-seven talks. Uh, sometimes two a day uh, and meeting uh, loads and loads of people visitors so this ask swami what we do is we take questions from all over the world and uh, um we collate them there's a team which uh, organizes classifies and presents them to me but we also take questions from the live audience here uh, so those of you want to ask questions Well, hold on to your questions, but you will get your chance. Uh, when I ask you, raise your hand. I'll call you up here, tell us your name, and ask your questions. But first, some questions from the internet audience. We'll take a couple couple of those first. Diane is going to ask the questions as usual. Thank you, Swami. Uh, the first question is from Pritam M. Pranam, Swamiji. In the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, Thakur talks about vidya. and avidya maya and explains that things like anger jealousy constantly seeking sense pleasures are the things that fall under the rubric of avidya maya on the other hand things like acquiring spiritual knowledge generating love for god seeking mental purity walking a spiritual path are considered to be under the rubric of vidya maya whether avidya or vidya it is still maya How do we know then that enlightenment or spiritual liberation is not just another unexplored part of this maya? How do we know that spiritual liberation, enlightenment liberation is not not just that's also could be that could be part of maya. It is. <laughs> that in fact is the stunning conclusion of uh, Advaita Vedanta. Those who have studied the Mandukya remember there's this verse which sets out the highest truth the final thing that can be said and it's quite a stunner uh, i gave a talk about it i think it was called the ultimate truth yes what does it say gaudapada shankaracharya's teacher's teacher shankaracharya's teacher is govindapada and his teacher was gaudapada who wrote those um, commentarial verses on the mandukya upanishad the verses are called the mandukya karika and in that verse 
he makes this stunning statement na nirodho na chutpatti na baddho na cha sadhaka na muk na mumukshur na vai muktah ittesha paramarthata resounding words more than 1500 1400 1500 years ago what does it say um this universe this samsara it has no end why doesn't it have an end because it never be, never began you know if it began then you can talk about an a conclusion and end to samsara uh, but what about all of us we are in bondage we are here in vedanta society we want liberation nobody is in bondage then uh, but then what are we practicing spiritual disciplines for if we are not in bondage if why are we meditating and philosophy and good works he says nasadhaka there's nobody practicing spiritual disciplines what do you mean what about the seekers of liberation those who want see exactly what he's talking about seekers of liberation enlightenment mumukshum the ones who want moksha nirvana liberation salvation there's no uh, mumukshu there no, there's nobody who wants liberation there's no there's no seeker of uh, enlightenment but then at least there are those who are enlightened i mean after all you are an enlightened being presumably uh, though you sound crazy but you, presumably you are an enlightened being he says namukta there's nobody who's enlightened what are you talking about ittesha paramarthata this is the highest truth this is the ultimate truth yes it is from the perspective of advaita vedanta when you look at what vedanta says absolute truth is existence consciousness place that's all that there is all this is an appearance a display a, a movie playing on the screen of the absolute so from the from the absolute perspective none of this is true including neither bondage is true but then in that in that case if bondage is not true then freedom is also not true means it's not a specific event in space time so ultimately the, uh, the ultimate reality brahman alone is the reality that always was is and will continue to exist and even was is will continue you know you are you are presuming time already there now this is very high this is very abstract so it is good to know this and this is a direct answer if you want a straight answer to the question what about liberation what about enlightenment isn't it part of maya also yes it is if you are already liberated if you never were in bondage then the so called enlightenment liberation must be part of maya don't you see in fact if it were not think of the consequences if i'm really in bondage and then i need a real liberation from this real bondage who knows there might be a real bondage once again after this not only that knowledge can't help me in that case enlightenment means getting realizing something something dawning on you the light bulbs going off that can't help you if i'm really tied with a rope thinking i am free doesn't help me i'm still tied here are the ropes but if i think i am tied with a rope and i'm in a dream if i somebody helps me wake up from that and i see it's all right then knowledge helped me the path of knowledge the path of enlightenment uh, ignorance is the problem and knowledge is the is the solution that works only if what godapada said was true that bondage and uh, liberation are both in maya only then but having said that now down to brass tacks to be, to be practical how does that help us right now right now we don't see that 
we it's an amazing thing to hear and to understand philosophically it's great it's actually reassuring it it quells our anxiety at a deep existential level but practically to get to that point uh, what sri ramakrishna has said is very useful vidya maya avidya maya yes it is all maya but it's vidya maya and avidya maya vidya is knowledge and avidya is ignorance there is the maya of ignorance which sucks us in pulls us deeper into the mire the swamp of samsara and that is anger and lust and greed and self seeking which is at the base of base of anger lust and greed and at the base of all of it root is this little me mine i i am this thing and everything for me and once i do that immediately i am in conflict with every other little individual in conflict in competition and so samsara starts for me now all of these things which tie me down to this little me i me mine now i me mine is still philosophical little abstract we want more concrete examples anger that's pretty 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 clear lust greed and the consequent fear and anxiety and and guilt and all of the 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 you know the whole range of negativities which is produced by this kind of a life all of that comes under avidya maya ignorance why ignorance because it's based on a fundamental ignorance about ourselves we do not know what or who we truly are as vivekananda would often say with a touch of pathos in here in the united states if only you knew who you truly are that would really set us free so that is avidya maya now every effort to lead a higher life a moral life a caring life a self a selfless life and the higher spiritual disciplines of prayer of meditation and inquiry all of these are under the as as he has beautifully written actually under the rubric of vidya maya what does this do this attenuates thins out the self seeking the root of being caught in samsara and then we are prepared for the liberation the eventual liberation yes it's within um, uh, maya no doubt but that also that event within maya it shows us what we truly are then we realize it was all right truly realize not just say it not just read about it and then we are called jivan mukta even in this body and mind even running around in this world is still free free at the level of our own innermost reality as the atman the body is subject to cause, causes and conditions it will come and go it will rise it will decay and it will die i was just reading today in the morning um here in the prayer we were reading mahapurush maharaj swami shivananda ji somebody asks him he's very old he's the president of the order suffering physically somebody asks him swami uh, uh, are you all right he says i am all right but the body is not <laughs> and the body is subject to um, you know birth and aging and death and this body he says is now on its way to the final change death and it is all right it has lived long enough has it not <laughs> and i am all right i know i am ageless i am timeless i am very clear about that so i accept it peacefully so vidya maya frees us from this Uh, this trap of samsara let's go a little further uh, deeper into this you know 
the very ancient philosophy of Sankhya that talks about two ultimate realities. It's not non-dualistic. It's, it's uh, uh, unapologetically dualistic. Material nature, you know, the physical nature, and even mental nature. So all of whatever is an object, matter, uh, energy, time, space, but also mind, thoughts, feelings, emotions, they are objects because you are aware of them. What's an object? Whatever you are aware of is an object. Or as the philosopher uh, Arindam Chakravarti uh, adroitly put it, whatever objects to your consciousness is an object. Objects means resists your consciousness. You, be, you run up against it and you become aware of it. You see? All of these. If objects were not there, you would be an unlimited field of consciousness and actually not aware of anything. The moment, moment you are aware of something, it's something that you are running up against. It's an object. You see it, you hear it, you smell it, you taste it, you feel it. You think of it, you understand it, you remember it, you desire it, you hate it. But that it is an object. So whatever is it, an object, the Sankhyan philosophy calls it Prakriti, nature. It's vastness spread out before us. And the one who experiences the it, the one who experiences the it, the knower, the experiencer, the awareness, Sankhyan philosophy calls it Purusha. Purusha. Purusha, here the Sanskrit word immediately evokes, if you know Sanskrit, it might mislead you because it evokes the idea of a male. It's not male. It's that conscious being, the knower. And Prakriti, it's not, it's a female principle, but it's actually the known, the, the entire universe, the entire time, space, matter, energy, power, all of that. Now, Sankhya says, the whole problem for us is that we are a mixture of Prakriti and Purusha. We are consciousness mixed up with a lot of, a lot of it, that object, body, mind and senses and thoughts and emotions and all of that. And what Prakriti, material nature, does for consciousness is it does two things. This is where it connects with the question. It gives two things to Purusha. Prakriti gives two things to Purusha. Nature gives two things to you, the experiencer. Bhoga apavarga. The Sanskrit term bhoga means experience. What kind of experience? Pleasant and unpleasant. The lower forms of samsara where we are trapped and we struggle and we suffer. And the higher forms of samsara, the um, you know, better life. And then apavarga, freedom. Ethics. Spirituality and ultimate enlightenment. But that's also given by nature. Freedom from what? Freedom from itself, from nature. So nature gives the, the, the awareness, you. It gives you two things. Experience of what? Of nature. And freedom from what? From nature. Both are given by nature. Now you see how that concept of Prakriti, ancient. Swami Vivekananda calls it the father of all philosophy. Most ancient philosophy, long before the Buddha. That philosophical understanding that nature gives us two things. Bhoga, experience, samsara, and freedom from samsara, apavarga, which is an ancient word for moksha. That has become the vidya maya and avidya maya, which Sri Ramakrishna is talking about. Maya giving it two things, two things uh, ignorance and samsara and suffering, and freedom from all of this and enlightenment and fulfillment. Both are given by Maya to us. And both are within Maya. 
I think that will do. One more question. Uh, this question is from Swastik M. After meditating on your discourses on Advaita, I've come to understand the following. The witness is ever-present and cannot perform any action. It has only three attributes, Sat, Chit, and Ananda. This truth is the source of all other truths. The witness never has a desire to seek anything. It is the mind seeking liberation. This implies that the mind itself removes its own veil through knowledge. Assuming my understanding is correct, how to turn the understanding I have into meditation practice? I think this is particularly well put. Swastik, right? Yeah. I think we'll go to, through it sentence by sentence. At first he says that the witness consciousness um, has only three attributes. Sat, Chit and Ananda. Those are the first two sentences. Present and cannot perform any action. It has only three attributes, Sat, Chit and Ananda. Yes, the witness is ever present. Witness means the Sakshi, consciousness, which we are, all of us, we are that. Ever present? Yes, it's ever present. Um, and then cannot perform any action. You, and this is again coming from Sankhya. All action is performed by Prakriti, by nature. And Purusha, consciousness, does not perform any action. But it's not true that it cannot perform any action. In fact, because of it, all action is performed. Think of um, you in a, you are, suppose you are dreaming and maybe you're taking a walk in the park and talking with your friends. You, the dreamer, are not walking in the park or talking with your friends. You're actually sleeping and dreaming it all up. And yet all that walking and talking is being done because of you. It wouldn't exist without you. So without this witness consciousness, no action exists. It's not that. Sankhya would have two things. Consciousness and a material realm. The material realm when the action takes place and the consciousness is a witness thereof. But even in Sankhya, the presence of the consciousness is necessary for the material realm to act. And it, for that action to be registered. In Advaita it goes even further. There is no material realm apart from that consciousness. The entire material realm, entire realm of Prakriti is an appearance in consciousness. So without this witness consciousness, which also is this uh, pure being, there is no action possible. All action is possible because of you, because of you the consciousness. But yes, you are right, it does not directly act. The next he says, it has only three attributes. Sat, Chit and Ananda. Sat is being, Chit is consciousness and Ananda is bliss. This is the truth that is the basis of all other truths. Be truth. That's pretty well put. I think we just stop a little bit here. We in Vedanta, we incessantly talk about the ultimate reality. And what is the ultimate reality? It is being, existence, Sat. It is Chit, consciousness. It is Ananda, it's bliss. And it's very easy to slip into the way of talking that uh, this, uh, the question is written that these are the attributes of the witness consciousness. They are not the attributes. They are the witness consciousness. What's the difference? See, a thing has attributes. So if you say the self has these attributes, it, is, it has existence, it has consciousness, it has bliss, then it is something apart from the attributes. It has those attributes. No, that is not true. According to Advaita Vedanta, the self, your reality, is that you are being itself, existence. You are consciousness itself. You are 
bliss itself as opposed to what as opposed to your existence itself as opposed to an existing thing things exist these things exist so the self witness consciousness atman brahman is not one more thing which exists you know there's a table and a microphone and a clock and one brahman ultimate reality no it's it's not is going to i'm not going to find it in a catalog of things which exist but it is the very existence of everything then it is consciousness itself what does it mean when we talk about consciousness what we actually comes to mind are is thinking is perceiving is feeling is memory is desire all of these things which we associate with consciousness so these are events conscious events taking place in the mind chit consciousness is not one more conscious event it is that which makes all consciousness possible and ananda ananda is joy or bliss so when when we think about that we think of a smiley face you know very happy some feeling of happiness it's not some feeling of happiness it is that which is manifested as all sorts of feelings of happiness from the um, grossest up to the most uh, elevated uh, artistic uh, uh, you know aesthetic or even spiritual moods all kinds of fulfillment happiness are ananda these are not attributes no more than the example which i love is golden ornaments no more than gold is another kind of ornament you have necklaces and bracelets and rings and what what are what are the ornaments do you have gold no gold is not one more type of ornament it is the reality of all those gold ornaments similarly sat chit and anand is the reality of everything now he says this is the basis of all truths this is the truth which is the basis of all truths i don't know what sense he wrote it in swastik but it is very well put all of philosophy broadly you can classify it into three areas ontology which deals with existence what is then epistemology which deals with knowledge what is knowledge what do we know how do we know all these things and axiology which deals with things like beauty and good morals what is good what is beautiful things which were earlier under the um, under the classification of aesthetics under the classification of uh, ethics all of that is now sort of values and goodness and beauty axiology now think about it sat chit and ananda these are the answers to the deepest questions in ontology epistemology and axiology in fact these are the answer this is the answer to all philosophy ultimately what exists what is reality answer is sat pure being unlimited being question epistemology what is knowledge how do we know who knows um the answer is consciousness chit the answer to all knowledge is consciousness i mean that's at the basis of all knowledge and then finally what is worthwhile what are we seeking what's the point of life what is this all about value the highest thing that we can have purpose fulfillment the answer is ananda axiology all ontology all epistemology all axiology culminates in sat chit ananda and that's true what he just said this is the truth which is at the basis of all truths you see literally all the philosophical truths that you come across in ontology in epistemology in axiology 
If you solve the, the questions and if you give answers to the questions, fundamental questions of philosophy, you have given answers to all important questions. The philosopher, you might say, no, 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 what about science? Science is a, a, a fringe to ontology. <laughs> it's a quest for what is real in this physical universe. That's an offshoot of the broader philosophical question of what is real. So, the philosopher Wittgenstein said, when all the important questions of, um, when all the questions of science have been answered, no problem of any importance will have ever been solved. You need to work that out for yourself. But he was full of these utterances. You can see what he means. Importance to us. These are the important things. What's real? Who are we? What is the point of all this? And the answer is Sat Chit Ananda. Yes, he has put it beautifully, uh, Swastik, that this is the truth, the basis of all truths in this universe. Existence, awareness, goodness, value, whatever you call it. Sat Chit Ananda. Next sentence. Witness never has a desire to seek anything. It is the mind seeking liberation. Yes. The witness doesn't, doesn't have desire to seek anything because it does not lack anything. I mean, even us at our this level. Notice how all desire sees the moment the mind stops functioning. And deep sleep, for example. So mind is not functioning. Mind is stilled. Everything is there. The memory is there. It all comes back when we, re when we awaken. But there is no desire there. And there is no possibility of desire without some movement in the mind. It, the desire depends on the mind. Also, let's look deeper. It doesn't even depend on the mind. Proof, there are minds which are free of desire. The mind is there. Enlightened ones. Their minds are supposed to be free of desire. The minds are working and yet they are free of desire. So it's not really the fault of the mind. The mind is an instrument. What fault does it have? The mind is like, you know, always blaming me, these Vedantins. <laughs> but it's not, not the mind's fault also. It's the fault of ignorance, of not knowing our real nature. The enlightened one knows who he or she is and who means that you are Satchidananda. And that knowledge removes all desire from the mind. So desire comes from ignorance. Ignorance of our ever-fulfilled nature makes us think that we are not fulfilled. Makes us think, obviously, as these little bodies and minds we have, we are, um, we are always small and weak and vulnerable. And therefore, of course, we need so many things. Desire comes from a wrong idea, identity. Identity of body-mind. When that is gone, even the mind will be without desire. The mind can function, in fact, better. The less desire there is in the mind, the less ignorance there is in the mind, the better the mind functions. The minds of the enlightened ones function the best. So, mind uh, desires, but yes, the, it is the mind which desires, and the mind, or the highest kind of desire can be the desire for liberation. He's right. The mind, it's the mind which desires liberation. Yes, the last one. Then he says, this implies that the mind itself removes its own veil through knowledge. Assuming my understanding is correct, how to turn the understanding I have into meditation practice. 
understanding is good actually what he has written swastik is pretty good uh, does the mind remove yes the mind removes its own veil through knowledge but always remember not forgetting yourself you are the sun ever shining on the mind you are the one who lights up the mind the ignorant mind even the clouds which are right there now in the manhattan sky but we they, it veils the sun but is the same sun which reveals the clouds even the ignorance in our mind is revealed by consciousness by our real nature and when the ignorance in the mind goes and knowledge arises it reveals to us what we truly are it reveals to the mind what its own innermost reality truly is and that is liberating it's liberating for the mind yes so ignorance is at the level of the mind knowledge is also at the level of the mind somebody asked this question but knowledge also comes in the mind so isn't it's also a mental event right since ignorance is in the mental thing knowledge should also be a mental thing the sun does not need illumination the clouds need to be removed from our sight the sun is ever illumined you do not need illumination you are ever illumined if there is ignorance in the mind you the illumined you you consciousness you reveal the ignorance in the mind if the ignorance goes and knowledge arises that knowledge is also revealed by you good how do we turn this into meditation and why would you want to meditate <laughs> no i am just only half joking yes to turn this understanding into meditation you need to stay with it that's all this staying with understanding is called nididhyasana this is a vedantic meditation the different kinds of meditation broadly speaking all techniques of meditation are meant to focus the mind here this is i would say the peak the everest peak of all meditation techniques still a technique it is meant to focus the mind but focus the mind on what on the understanding already gained what you have gained is wonderful stay with it till it deepens still the mind in that that clarity till it deepens till it becomes an unchallengeable fact it's already an unchallengeable fact but we don't see it for that so what it why that meditation will do it will remove the last vestiges of um, the clouds covering the sun it will help us to assimilate so vivekananda talks about the value of meditation at this point what swastik is asking he says you dwell on this fact i am that i am that till it twink till it tingles with every drop of your blood till it becomes a living reality for you after that you you don't have to make an effort just like i don't have to make an effort to remember i am sarva priyananda it's not even a memory it's knowledge for me it's not that morning and evening i have to sit and meditate on see i have understood i am sarva priyananda now what technique of meditation shall i apply on myself to know that i am sarva priyananda not necessary i effortlessly know it and that is also a kind of conditioning because i was given the name sarva priyananda so quickly it becomes part of my identity but this is the reality what you are talking about satchidananda is the reality behind all conditioning how much more natural that it will be um it it will be choiceless it will always be there effortless but yes as long as we feel that um it's not i'm not steady enough i get the understanding then it slips away it's not helpful to me in my practical day to day life it's not it's not i cannot use it so far to overcome my uh, negativities then meditation is very much necessary and for that so many techniques are there 
there are six techniques in Trig Drishya Vivek which I have talked about if you see that series. There are 15 techniques in Aparoksha Anubhuti which I have talked about if you see that series. Just use anything and everything to dwell on that truth. Swami Suhita Nandaji, who is our Vice President now, who served Swami Premesharanji for a long time. Swami Premesharanji was definitely an enlightened master, a disciple of the Holy, Holy Mother. In his last years, he was bedridden and sick. When he would suffer a lot, he, he had a peculiar medicine. He would tell his attendant, take out Swami Vivekananda's Jnana Yoga, the book, and read to me from that. It seems dry and abstruse philosophy. Who, why would a sick person want to have that read to? And when it, the attendant would read from that, this old Swami, you know, he would pass into a peaceful reverie and become quiet and still, overcoming the multiple problems in the body. What happens? He's using that. He's already enlightened. But he's using that as a crutch to point back towards the reality which is always there. He just needs a little bit of it and then he's gone inside. It, it need not be a Vedantic thing, the path of knowledge. It could be devotional. I was reading how Swami Brahmananda in Belurmat, early in the morning, before sunrise, before even going to meditation, the attendant, Swami Brahmananda was our first president, you know, and the attendant in his room, he would tell him, he would give him a very beautiful uh, tune, that Jai Radha Madhava, uh, Radha Madhava Shyam, like that, uh, the names of Krishna. You sing that. And he would sing, and Swami Brahmananda very quickly, he would pass into Samadhi, he would completely be absorbed. We would stop, Swami Brahmananda would come out of it again and say, let it go on, don't stop, go on. They use it as a crutch, uh, as, as a support, uh, or as a pointer back into the reality, which is always there. Would somebody from the audience, would you want to ask a question? There's a gentleman there. And the next you. So we'll take two questions. Tell us your name and ask the question. Pranam Maharaj. Actually, I have two questions. All right, but tell us your name first. Tell us your name first. My name is Prabal, Prabal Mukherjee. Um, and speak into the microphone, yeah. Yeah, I have a request on the question is that due to my limited vocabulary, I would like to ask this question in Bengali. I know. Please go ahead. Yes, I'll translate for others. Thank you. Kothamrito the Thakur Bohubar bolachen dubtao, dubtao. Opor opor bhashleki habe dubtao. I think he's pointing to some action. A dubta ki kore devo. Right. And if you connect to this Duptao thing, there is a song from Ram Prashad, Duptao, Duptere Mon Kali Bole. She can have a line at Ami Dom Shamurte, Agdube, Dom Shamurte, Agdube Jao, Kulo Kundulinir Kule. A Dom Shamurte is anything to do with like physical Dom, Kumbhak, or anything else. So, All right. So, this is the first question? This is the first question. Yes. So what he is asking is that in the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, Sri Ramakrishna again and again says, dive deep, dive deep. What's the use of floating on the surface? So how do, it's probably some action he's referring to. What is this dive deep? The first thing one should do to dive deep 
is to occupy one's thoughts, one's time, one's days with spirituality. How do you do that? With the four yogas. At all times am I engaged with God either through action or devotion or meditation or self-inquiry. Karma yoga, bhakti yoga, raja yoga, jnana yoga. These are broad classifications. You will find in fact in all religions of the world some variety which will fit in, in any one of these four paths or more than four, I mean across multiple of um, yogas. Am I engaged in that? And it's possible to be engaged in that. Even the so-called secular actions can be spiritualized under the broad head of karma yoga. So then my one and only goal becomes God, enlightenment. The rest is basically all nonsense. The rest as we, you know, we spend so much of our time in this virtual world, the simulation of maya. One uh, senior Swamiji said this, we call it the relative world. Don't use such terms as, well, things of the relative world, job, money, relationships, well, maybe they are relatively useful. No, they are not even relatively useful. They are positively harmful. <laughs> from a spiritual perspective, from ultimately if you want enlightenment. So, spiritualize all of that. And in fact, externally not much may change. You Just your focus will change in life. Externally, you still have a job. You still have uh, parents and uh, siblings and husband, wife, children. All of that job is going on. You must, everybody must have a field of action. Kurukshetra was the field of action for Arjuna. It's a battlefield of action. That has to be spiritualized. Um, then the next thing, so this is the preliminary of Dubda. This is even just the beginning as we, um, you know, spend our time and our days with God. But as we do that, we will begin to see in each of these yogas, it is possible to deepen. Um, karma yoga can be deepened not just being ethical and doing some good to others but this inner feeling of offering it to the divine God in all beings I am worshipping God I have, I have uh, come across this multiple times actually having a spirit of worship with, in our hospitals in our schools I have seen and known monks who have practiced practiced this I met this monk this time in my tour of India, uh, whom I'd seen more than five years ago. I was amazed at his spiritual development. The power he has accumulated. I, mean, um, I gave a talk. Everybody expects, ah, oh, Vedanta talk, Swami Sarvapriyananda and all of that. But then this young monk, he stood up and spoke. He, he shook the hall you know, by the sheer power of, of character and sincerity and positivity and conviction just the force and what was his secret service just seeing god in everybody and 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 working for them it was a very strange audience actually uh, unique 180 cops police these were policemen in charge of different parts of you know police stations of different parts of calcutta tough crowd to motivate yeah. Often do you have a, you know you would see that they're a very cynical crowd. So the you can deepen service, and you realize how far spread are the tentacles of self-interest, and you see what deepening means and how freeing and how purifying it is 
not to be concerned with one's little self the worries and problems and it's not important the other one is important god is present in those forms this little body mind is problems are unimportant then you can deepen uh, bhakti yoga not just a little bit of ritualistic worship not just a prayer but you know the most powerful force we have love collect it from all the ways we have scattered it in the forms of passion and desire and relationships in the world you collect that energy and make it stream upwards towards god it's love i think it was cs lewis who wrote that book near christianity and he said what is devotion what is faith in god he says the best example i can give which people in the world will understand easily is to fall in love when you fall in love you you don't give reasons and all that that comes later but you just fall in love so you fall in love with god try it you see how deep it can become then of course meditation can be deepened you start doing meditation you'll begin to see there's so much scope of deepening it we float it becomes very clear how we are floating on the surface especially in meditation becomes clear and what is diving deep there is is stillness is focus is clarity and the living experience i mentioned swami sohitanand ji and swami premeshanand ji towards the end in fact the very end of swami premeshanand ji's life he asked his attendant did you want want anything want to know anything and a couple of things the attendant asked the attendant is swami sohitanand himself he told me so one thing he asked was that uh, one one he got an answer the other one he didn't get an answer uh, the first thing he asked was you know these pictures we see so you look at these pictures all the time swami are they pictures to you or are they real and swami premeshanji said they are real god exists i i see sri ramakrishna holy mother swami vivekananda the next question he asked of course it's not relevant to us but just the the what do you call it the hutspa of the young attendant he said you were initiated by the holy mother tell me that mantra <laughs> and the swami point blank he smiled and said no <laughs> that cannot be done actually he did just a part of it and he said stop no further <laughs> uh so it can be deepened meditation can be deepened so much and then dive deep in the path of self inquiry direct path the truth is ever shining at us all the time unobstructed shankaracharya takes the classic pot example clay and pot is the clay ever obstructed in the pot i mean the pot is there is it hidden the clay is the clay hidden if you look at this this podium this uh, this altar it's made of wood is the wood hidden here is it like yeah i can see the altar and you saying there is something called wood is it in deep inside the altar somewhere in one corner is it hidden somewhere behind the altar no the whole thing is wood what you see is the wood what you touch here what you what it sounds from it's the wood uh, the clay is absolutely in shankaracharya's word bhasura it blazes forth like the sun similarly the truth that this is brahman is all the time blazing forth yet we don't see it that's the amazing thing about it dive deep into the path of knowledge it will be immediately clear and at the deepest level all our problems will be solved straight away forever deepest level 
practical day-to-day problems will always there. You will have to navigate your way through life. But you'll be happy. You'll be all right with it. It's fine. There will be no, um, you know, one beautiful way they put it in the Upanishads. When death comes, physical death comes to the enlightened one. Enlightened one is without regret. Why did I do these evil deeds? Why did I not do the good when it was presented? All of us, unfortunately, at the point of death, we regret. There was this, but the enlightened one is free of such regrets in the sense that he has attained the goal of human life, so nothing more needs to be accomplished at the deepest level. There was this emergency room nurse. She wrote of her experiences with dying patients, palliative care and then emergency care also, um, people who are dying. Not emergency room, the, I, uh, what do you call it? Uh, ICU, intensive care unit nurse, yes. And it was published in Reader's Digest. What's the most common lament of those who pass away consciously? Most common lament is, why did I not do it when I had time? Whatever it was, something nice they wanted in life and it passed them by. And what they did in life doesn't seem to have satisfied. Vedanta there would have said, among all of those things, if it was something spiritual, yes, it's worth lamenting. Why didn't you do it? If it was something else, don't worry about it because it wouldn't have amounted to much anyway. <laughs> if it was something spiritual and I did not do it, it's worth lamenting because the Upanishad says, Keno Upanishad, in this life itself, here itself, you become enlightened, then there is truth for you, there is reality for you, there is immortality for you. If in this life itself one does not become enlightened, great is the loss. Mahati Vinashti. Vast, unending is, is our loss indeed. So, while we have time, as he says, let us dive deep. Second question, if you still remember. Yeah, I remember. I, I had a, a following question. No, let's just ask the second one. We'll, we'll have, okay, okay. We have got one more question. So there is a, yeah, there is a, uh, in Bibek Churamani, there is a sutra that regarding the Guru. Nirindhan Ibo Anala. Nirindhan Ibo Anala. What? Nirindhana Iva Anala. The total, uh, the whole slok is Srotiya Abhijinya Akamhata. Jo Brahmabhittam, Brahmani Uparita, Nirandhan Ibanala. The 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 fire doesn't have any any fuel. Yes. Any fuel. Yes. What is that like? I mean, yeah. how so, do you know? Is uh, so our life is like a blazing fire, which is fueled by uh, desire, which is in in turn fueled by ignorance. But that is wiped out. That fire of life, fire in the sense of we are burning. Another example is used fever. We are in a fever, in the grip of a fever. That is quietened. The fire is put out. In fact, the original meaning of nirvana, which is used by Buddha, is nirvapita, extinguished. The reality is not extinguished. This flame which is burning of, of a, um, you know, we are literally burning up with the fever of worldliness. That flame is extinguished. You are left cool. So nirindhana even. Indhana means fuel. When the fuel of worldliness is exhausted, then reality shines forth. That is quietened. I did not answer your question about the Ram Prashad song, 
but those are actually meanings are often elliptical it would take a scholar of tantra to you you dive uh, to the root of kundalini to awaken the kundalini act dome dom here might mean uh, control of the breath it might mean well enough it might mean kumbhaka the reference might be to that but i won't venture there because that's not my area of expertise it's it's a vast a, see they, these people there's difference between them and say vedanta for example um vedanta post shankara vedantins for example they wrote in a very precise logical language directly accessible to our intellect these people they wrote in an elliptical language the language they call it evocatively they call it the language of twilight the advantage of elliptical language is it can convey a lot precise logical language will convey only one thing what it intends to convey poetic language elliptical language the language of they call it the language of twilight and evening even that <laughs> is uh, it can convey a lot also it's good for secrecy so you don't know what they are talking about <laughs> it's but somewhere deep inside our mind understands our logical mind can't make sense of it there is this beautiful song for some time cultivate in secret o oh my mind your love for krishna go and bathe in the uh, in the lake of krishna why would your clothes get wet that's <laughs> this is not talking about a real lake with water so yeah so this is like the language of evening it it evokes something and actually our mind understands somewhere deep inside we understand but we also can't put it quite into words what it's saying all right thank you so much for those questions all right you can ask you may not get the answer <laughs> yeah see yeah, so, yeah. Um, how do i know that i'm doing it correct like deeping dive uh, whatever you say that how with the passage will come the question will come thank you <laughs> this one more uh, we'll take another question okay. from uh, this young man here tell us your name and ask the question pranam maharaj ji um, my name is ritojit um, i wanted to ask that i read when uh, ramkrishna was in his deathbed and naren was thinking that if this man can say that i am incarnation at this point then i believe it and ramkrishna immediately turned and said tor ekhono obishwash je ram shei krishna tobe tor vedanter mote noy shotti shotti what does ramkrishna mean by when he says not according to your vedanta but the truth and even uh, among his disciples ramkrishna makes this distinction that nitya siddho ishwar koti jeep koti how does this actually like goes with advaita vedanta mm. answer is it doesn't <laughs> but you see sri ramakrishna's approach is so universal if if you go only by classical advaita vedanta they wouldn't say such things but classical advaita vedanta is not the only philosophy there is even among the vedantins they tell us something useful that don't hold on to a philosophy too tightly because these are frameworks these are approximations of the truth they are not the truth itself 
There's a difference between a fossil in the Museum of Natural History and the real living animal in the wild itself. So the fossil is the framework. It is the philosophy. Somebody said, if you hold on too tightly to Advaita Vada, the philosophy of Advaita Veda, you will get Advaita, but you will not get enlightenment. <laughs> so how do you hold on? You must be clear. You don't have to be fuzzy or you don't have to be vague about it. Absolutely clear, master of the philosophy, and yet completely open to seeing other sides. You know, beginning to see how the other philosophy is also talking about the same thing which you are talking about, yet from an entirely different um, perspective. So, uh, when Sri Ramakrishna says that he who was Rama, he who was Krishna, is in this body, in this life, in this body, Ramakrishna. But not from your Vedantic perspective. So what is your Vedantic perspective? One existence consciousness bliss is there. And that manifests as everything. What about sentient beings? Yes, you are a manifestation of that. You are that uh, absolute reality. What about this world? This world is that absolute reality actually when it's truly known for what it is. It's not a world. It is Brahman. Brahman alone appears as this world. And what about God? God is also that same existence consciousness place. That's, that's also there. Then the incarnation of God is the same existence consciousness place which you are. Now that erases the difference between you and an incarnation of God. But only at the absolute level of course. Sri Ramakrishna says, don't take it in that spirit. Take it in the spirit in which devotees take it. Say a Vaishnava, a devotee of Vishnu, will take Rama and Krishna and presumably Chaitanya, Rama, Krishna as uh, incarnations of Vishnu, uh, of incarnations of God. Not like us. Swami Vivekananda says, what's an avatar? He says, nature has two kinds of creation. One, the universe and us, all of us. All of this is the creation of nature. And two, a special creation called the incarnation of God. And he gives the example, like Rama or Krishna or Jesus, he says. So that much of a distinction he makes. All of us, everything, from the vastest galaxy, and quasars and all, down to the tiniest, uh, you know, super strings or whatever. We're all on one side, all living beings, all of us, we are on one side and the incarnation of God is on the other side. They're completely different, distinct from us. So that distinction is pointing towards I am not like the rest of you. I am an incarnation of God in reality. So that Advaita Vedanta would say to that also. If you say, what would Advaita say to that? Fine, have it your way. But you are Brahman, isn't it? Yes. And the rishis, when Ramachandra with Sita goes to the exile in the forest, the first rishis, the ashram he comes to, the rishis are in meditation, the sages are in meditation, and they open their eyes and look at Ramachandra, and they know who he is. And the reaction is, so what? The reaction is, we, he just, they just say, to us, we know who you are. But to us, you are the son of Dasharatha, the king of, um, of Ayodhya. And Ramchandra smiles and says, so be it, it's alright. Totapuri, non-dualist, after some time, there's a very peculiar dialogue. He says to Sri Ramakrishna, I see now who you are. Let me go. And Sri Ramakrishna says, No. I will not let you go. Until your mission coming here, until full Advaitic knowledge is attained, I will not let you go. So what is it that Todapuri sees? 
suddenly he saw a perfect disciple and he said we do want to learn advaita and he says let me go and ask my mother you know the story sri ram krishna goes to the kali temple and then comes back totapuri thought that he had gone to ask his own natural biological mother and then he teaches him advaita as time goes by totapuri finds he cannot live leave the place he used to stay only 3 nights in every place then he begins to see that this is not just a great disciple a wonderful perfect disciple you know who would get non dual knowledge and he did get non dual knowledge then he begins to see who this is what 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 is it that he sees there's nothing is mentioned nothing is explained i think he sees sri ramakrishna as an avatar one of those rare instances in history that totapuri sees oh i've stumbled on this one and his reaction is not devotion he says please let me go and sri ramakrishna says no uh, and until full advaitic knowledge is attained now who's full advaitic knowledge who knows it maybe says that until you have transmitted all knowledge of advaita to me because that's why you have come here or it could be the other way other way around the full fledged advaitic knowledge which you lack yet that will be accomplished the two things were accomplished here um, whenever all these masters came the ramayat sadhu the rama tradition today is ramnavami uh, who came with the baby rama uh, then ramlala then bhairavi who came with a vast knowledge of the tantras to sri ramakrishna and then totapuri who comes with this um, advaita vedanta classical advaitic vedanta knowledge so all of these streams of spiritual practice which were there ex- uh, existing in and around that milieu in sri ramakrishna they flowed through him and got reverified stamped with the fact that it works in this day and age also these are not old theories you can become enlightened he shows demonstrates to the highest possible extent in each one of them he gives a tick mark so the traditions are again regenerated the ancient traditions so he is called sthapakaya ch dharmasya establisher of dharma what do you mean establisher of dharma dharma is already there establish in the sense that he injects new life and light into them but the opposite is also true those who came to him they were also fulfilled they had something left which something they got from him and then they went away so this is the idea class if you can there's a there might be a tendency to dismiss the avatar idea from the classical advaitic perspective an avatar is fine with it but then for a vast majority of people the avatar is a powerful is a gateway to enlightenment even for non-dualists i have known of non-dualists who have got non-dual knowledge by meditating on sri ramakrishna they were not trying to get non dual knowledge they were meditating on ishta devata and doing japa and what realization did they get the oneness of all existence and i am that so it's a powerful gateway to whatever kind of enlightenment whatever your path of spiritual practice um, christians and muslims have attained to enlightenment through the avatar and enlightenment according to their own path fulfillment according to their own path so this would be lost if you um if you dismiss the idea of avatar by saying i'm also an avatar i'm i'm uh, i'm a manifestation of brahman after all everybody is an avatar cats and dogs are avatars also so then you would lose the speciality of the avatar thank you so much thank you we'll take a couple of quick questions first This is from Rama M. How do I know if I am progressing or regressing in my path to enlightenment? How does one recognize an enlightened being? 
So this is what you were asking, <laughs> Prabal? Yes. So this is the question. I remember it was on the list. Um, yes. Ishare Anurag, Bishaye Virag. Sri Ramakrishna gives the criterion that more our attraction grows to for God, and more our detachment from the world. Detachment in the sense it it's not important. It doesn't matter. What's important is God. Love of God, meditation on God, service of God—that matters. What happens in the world doesn't matter so much. I mean, you convert the activities in the world as a worship of God, of course, and then it matters. So this is one one indication. Ishwari onurag, bishaye birag. Pull towards God, and a detachment. You're not disturbed by the world so much. Um. a further development of this idea is that the negativities start reducing good indicator in our life is the negativities anger fear anxiety the, the pull of the world it starts reducing the frequency goes down earlier i used to get upset maybe every day or every other day and now it's maybe once in 15 days once in a month earlier it would be more intense i would fly into a rage and now it's a burst of irritation so intensity also will be much less uh, it hasn't gone away those which are deep tendencies in our our mind some have anger issues some have anxiety issues some feel very guilty they keep beating themselves up those things will will go down also quickly you can come out of it Uh, earlier one would go into feel unhappy uh, depressed and last for days and days but now you feel bad but in the afternoon you're okay the sun is shining so these are indicators that spiritual practice is working on a practical level it's working it is not instantaneous just as the body is a machine a biological machine the mind is also a machine so it whatever is uh, its tendencies are it will keep running along those lines and it's difficult to change it changes ever so a little bit but doesn't have to change too much all we need is change enough to give us enlightenment freedom from it you don't have to make it into a perfect mind you know like a complete saint you can't i mean some people can it takes a lot of effort and a lot of blessings and grace but we need to do enough so that we the mind is clear enough clean enough shiny enough to reveal our true face our true nature once it does that its work is gone how many minds will you reform one uttarakhand sadhu said in the beam of light in the early morning so many motes of dust are floating around have you noticed this in the morning when the beam of light comes into you know, imagine the himalayas the little hut of a monk and the first ray of sunlight and that can come quite late in the day because the sun has to rise above those towering mountain peaks first ray of sunlight and little motes of dust floating around he says vaise hi just like that in the radiance of your light you consciousness in in your radiance millions of minds are floating around like motes of dust how many of them are you going to clean and this it's also clever uh, you know like illusion there you can't clean a bit of dust it's still dust <laughs> So mind is mind. It should be clean enough to give. So I think Vivekananda says the only thing that we can do is polish the mirror. Inspired talks. So I mean Vivekananda said this in here in upstate New York on Thousand Island Park. The only thing that we can do is polish the mirror. What is the mirror? The mind. How do you polish it? 
karma yoga bhakti yoga raja yoga even gyana yoga all of those help in first cleansing the mind and then giving us enlightenment yeah so that's the sign the second part of the question was how do you recognize an enlightened being oh that's a difficult one <laughs> um enlightenment is entirely internal how do we know really how enlightened a person is we don't it's difficult to say some characteristics are there that is what is discussed when arjun actually asks this question to krishna in the second chapter of the bhagavad gita sthita pragyasya ka abhasha how would you define literally how would you define an enlightened person how does this person talk how does this person walk how does this person sit not just talk walk and sit a deeper meaning is how does this person walk a talk means how does this person react to problems in life good and bad things happen we react with delight when things go the our way we rea- react in uh, annoyance when things uh, do not go our way one sadhu in uttarakhand was saying in samsara worldly people come to vedanta very quickly they understand everything is vedanta ha sab vedanta until somewhere their selfish interests are obstructed then all vedanta disappears thrown out of the window what how i am such a vedante and i am so spiritual how did i become sick how did i get covid then it can't be true <laughs> but it's true regardless of whatever happens to me or to anybody else good and bad so um difficult whatever whatever has been said by krishna to arjuna if you look at those things how does a person react to good and bad things we react in this way how does an enlightened one react then how does a person walk walk here literally doesn't mean walk how does this enlightened one interact with the world what we do in in this world how we behave how is it different from the enlightened one or how is the enlightened one different from us how does this one sit when we withdraw from the world we relax we meditate or what is it for this person so all of these uh, Uh, questions he asks and if you see the answers that krishna has given you'll see all of them are very internal you really can't say it works for you if you see that happening to yourself well maybe you are enlightened or on the way, way to enlightenment but how do you see it for somebody else one criterion is of course ethical behavior an enlightened one is not bound by ethical behavior but generally an enlightened person would not be unethical So if you see unethical behavior immoral behavior whatever that person is is probably not very spiritual let alone being enlightened a good uh, sign sri ramakrishna has given jake dekhle ishwarer uddipan hoy you feel um you feel appraised you feel purified you feel sublime in the in the company of such people and this many many of us have noted very few highly spiritual people i have met in my life i've seen absolutely always it is the case that people around them they feel it how do they feel they feel purified negativity is diminished you feel peace you feel acceptance you feel joy a kind of very pure luminous joy you feel higher life becomes real worldly life sort of fades to the background A, a holy place like a pilgrimage can do that to you and a holy person can do that to you an enlightened person um more powerful they are the more deep that effect is i have seen 
a number of cases. For example, I've seen Swami Bhuteshanandaji, 12th President of our order, coming to an ashram. I saw the before and after. It's an ashram, a holy place. Yet it seems suddenly everything is lit up. Not physically. Somewhere, somehow. Everybody is in a state of joy because of his presence. And every day, everybody wants to finish their daily task and routine, just go to sit in his presence. After all, he's a 95, 96-year-old man. Yeah. What, what, what are you getting from this little old man? But you sit there, everybody's rushing like they're all attracted, like honeybees to the flower. That un- unexplained attraction. Uh, I mean, again and again I have seen crowds of people just gathering to look at him. So what is it, that attraction? That shows um, some kind of, uh, that shows enlightenment. And you can see it more ex- extraordinarily, of course, in the case of avatars. Uh, you have, we read of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in Puri, in Jagannath Shetra in Puri. What extraordinary depictions. And they're so vivid. They must be depictions by people who were there. Kirtan, singing and dancing is going on at, at night. And the whole crowd around, they're playing the drums and cymbals. And you know, Hare Ram, Hare Krishna, they're singing. And in between them is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in, uh, in ecstasy. He's not aware of the external world. And only half aware. And, therefore, and he's singing to the uh, song and dancing. And the beautiful description of people holding up these flaming, these firebrands, this mashal and uh, lamps, they're holding it up so that they can get a glimpse of his face. And this huge crowd is entranced. See, we can't see God, but he, here is one who is literally seeing God right at this moment. And it's, it's, it's expressed in his face. That, that's what stuns all of us. Sri Ramakrishna, he went uh, to, back to the village and he said, he says, Mahamaya Bhelki Lagidish is a magic show of the, um, of the Divine Mother. He had no rest for days on end. Wherever he goes, crowds of people gather around to look at him. And they, he says in Bengali, Takuti Takuti, that means the play of the drums. Everywhere you go, groups of musicians arrive and they want to sing and dance with him, take the name of God. And he can't sleep at night. People pressing uh, all around. Similar ex- example is there of Swami Premananda, Baburam Maharaj, who was the manager of Pelurmat, a direct disciple of Sri Ramakrishna. Um, he was an extraordinary spiritual. When he passed, uh, Holy Mother Masharada, she burst into tears and said, My Baburam was a light on the bank of the Ganga. He was li- light up the grounds of Pelurmat. She lived on the other bank and she felt his presence as a light shining on the other side of the river. And he has gone out. That light has gone out now. But there's a description of Sri Ramakrishna's birthday. Swami Premananda is in charge of all the festivities. Um, crowds of people coming, musicians. They rush towards him and surround him and they sing. And he just stands in silence or in ecstasy. But they're seeing him. There's this particular thing, a small description which I, I found unforgettable. In the afternoon, with all this pressure, you know, in the afternoon he wants to take a break, the famous Indian afternoon siesta. So he goes to this place which is called the visitor's room. It's still there in Belurumat now. It has got many windows all around. So he goes and he wants to take a nap there. And all the windows are thick with people who are looking down at him. Just to see his face while he's sleeping. What is that attraction? 
it's the attraction of god and it's a, it's something that we are feeling all the time whatever we do in life so vivekananda says in bhakti yoga whatever we do in life do you not see that one force behind all the good in this life the love of the mother for the child the 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 love of the greedy man for his money the love of the um, the politician the ambition for success and power in the world and the the, the tremendous urge for um, you know scientific discovery among a, a researcher and the the uh, you know the tendency of the the writer the artist for artistic expression pouring themselves out so vivekananda says it's one force and it's at its higher end it is the saint um you know searching for god which is the one force everywhere playing in all human beings in all civilizations in all life itself that is general but when it becomes very specific when that which all of this is searching for god when that god becomes even indirectly manifest to us in the face of somebody who is seeing god imagine the attraction we will have I remember there was this Swami Pavanananda ji in this was about nearly 30 years ago um in Deoghar I remember the, in, the, in the evening he was a disciple of Swami Shivananda and he was an Irishman um in his old age nearly 90 years at that time in the evening after the arati was over he would go to his room I would you know accompany him hold his hand and slowly take him there before he would leave the temple he would turn around and bow down to sri ramakrishna i still remember the first time i saw him do it i was walking towards him he was facing he was going down but before he left the temple he turned around facing me looking over my shoulder at the pictures at the uh, Im- images on the altar i tell you every hair on my body rose yeah. literally it's as if he was seeing this divine presence i whipped my head around to see what he was looking at he was just looking at the pictures but i'm sure he was not seeing what i was seeing i was seeing the pictures of sri ramakrishna but he was seeing a living presence now what i'm saying is just the expression on his face how is it that 30 years later i it is most vivid i close my eyes instantly it is there it is a reflection indirectly here is a person i believe seeing god and i'm seeing the expression on his face it's unforgettable i'm you know in this life if nothing happens i've seen those things yeah. i know another monk like that who was a disciple again a disciple of swami shivananda nirmuktanand who lived for more than 100 years i used to talk to him upen maharaj another monk a senior monk he saw me talking with this old upen maharaj nirmuktanand ji and he said and this other senior monk who told me was a very accomplished is a is a very accomplished man lot of things he has done in his life he said you know for all i have done in my life um he said i i am um i'd consider myself fortunate to roll on the dust on which this old monk has walked mm. that's my stature compared to him and i understand his feeling so this is the feeling you get when you come near a person let alone avatar such persons who probably are highly spiritually advanced i don't know who is enlightened or not this is just to illustrate sri ramakrishna saying that ishwar uh, udipan hai you get the feeling of the presence of god in the present 
when you are with such people that's a good indicator again all indirect indicators and we take one more and we'll conclude Uh, this is from Manoj S. Swamiji, you said that God-fearing is not about bhakti, but most of the pujas and kathas in Hindu drama are all about do this or do that. Otherwise, God will punish, her, punish you. Why this tradition? Yes, fear. Can fear take us towards God? Certainly. But it's the kindergarten of religion. Love is what pulls us towards God. And remember, fear and love do not go together. Now fear, it might start, I mean, the beginner, the lowest kind of mind may be turned towards God by fear. Awe is a little better than fear. God is awesome. <laughs> not in the Manhattan sense of awesome, but everything is awesome. <laughs> uh, but really, truly awesome. The only truly awesome thing is God. And you would naturally be afraid of such a thing. Um, so can it turn you towards God? Initially it can and that's why many religions um, have this component of you know, fear, the wrath of God, uh, fear, the anger of God and so on. Um, I remember this was Harvard Divinity School two years back when the COVID had just started. We were beginning to see what it was. People didn't know about social distancing, masking. First time I heard the term social distancing was at Harvard. Um, for, it was for a t my talk. It was going to be a big talk organized for me uh, and other teachers of Vedanta. There were supposed to be 250 people. It's a big crowd for Harvard. And then it got reduced to 25. I said, why? Then I heard this term, social distancing. So we were in class. And the class was Christian contemplative prayer. And then the professor, I still remember, Stephanie Paulsell, she talked about what does God do all day long? Routine, daily divine routine of the God. Of God. So uh, God, believe it or not, reads uh, the Bible in the morning. So <laughs> and the Torah, and the Jewish the Torah. And uh, there is a time when God sits. He has different thrones. So there's, there's a throne of judgment. God sits on the throne of judgment. And she put it so vividly that I think he has just sat down on the throne of judgment. And what we are going to see, and, and that class, little bit of it turned out to be like a prayer session, you know. This, everybody fell quiet. And she said, I'm afraid of what we are going to see over the next few years. Uh, and we, we pray to the Lord. I mean, it's our prayer that... Uh, it sit not on the throne of judgment, sit on the throne of forgiveness and compassion. So, fear. It can help people to turn towards God. And so that's why it is taught. But one must quickly move on from that to love. God doesn't want us to fear God. The more higher manifestations of God are the most human ones, which are closer and closer to us. And they say in Hinduism, the ten-armed deity, then the six-armed deity, then the four-armed, then the two-armed deity. Two-armed deity is a human deity. Then the baby, Krishna, Ramlala, the baby Jesus. Why? Why a baby? Is God a baby? No. But why in the form of a baby? The, the closest that you can get. 
And from the baby, you need not be afraid. Rather, you have to take care of the baby. You have to protect the baby. Now, how ridiculous it is that you have to protect God or take care of God. But no, the point is, God wants you to be as close, not afraid. And so, love of God. In spite of all that, the moment we have the slightest intimation of who or what it is that we are talking about, the first reaction, believe it or not, will be, ter- will be terror. Uh, is Somebody asked, Swami Bhuteshanandaji, 12th president, why was Narendra Vivekananda, why was he so scared when he, he wanted to see God, right? And Sri Ramakrishna was about to give him a direct experience of God. Why did he become so scared? What did he, see, he say when everything seemed to be disappearing from him? Narendra says to Sri Ramakrishna, stop, stop, what are you doing to me? I have parents at home. He, he wants it to stop. He's terrified. Swami Brahmananda, Rakhal, he complained to Sri Ramakrishna, everybody's getting visions and all that, I don't get anything, please bless me so that I might. And Sri Ramakrishna plays to the Divine Mother that if, if he can have some, some experience. And the next time Rakhal goes to the temple of Kali, he sees this living deity and light radiating everywhere. And he ran, <laughs> he ran for his life. And he came to Sri Ramakrishna, Sri Ramakrishna says, what's this now? You ask for it, you, you, you nag me for it, and when you get it, you run away. <laughs> but why? So the question was, why did they get scared? When Arjuna, after in the 11th chapter, he asks for the vision. You know, Krishna, I believe. He says to Krishna, I believe what you say. But can't I have this experience of seeing that you are God and in what your real nature as God? I'm seeing you as Krishna, and I believe that you are an avatar of God. But what is God like? What are you truly like? Can you show me? And Krishna says, I can. And he grants him his prayer. His prayer. He grants him. And what good did that, did that do? What was the result? Arjuna was terrified. He said, I don't want to. This is my mouth is drying up. The earth is shaking. I'm, my Every hair in my body is standing on its end. I can't think. My, my mind is spinning. Uh, stop this. Show me as you were earlier. In a human form. Now the question to Swami Bhuteshanji was, why? Why do we get so scared? And his very humorous answer, he would give this answer, but uh, you know, he would joke, but never laugh himself. With a deadpan expression, which made it all the funnier. You have to think of, those who have not seen, you have to think a little bit of uh, Yoda. <laughs> he was a very Yoda-like master. So he said, of course, you will feel afraid and because uh, you know, every bit of your personal identity uh, spins away into nothingness. You will feel terror and so on. He went on and then he said, but you lot have nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> we didn't get it at first. You understand right now, but we didn't. We, then we, we were shocked. Here is the head of our order basically telling us you will never be enlightened. <laughs> uh, we said, Swami, what are you saying? And he was uncommon. He said, no. Uh, all right. So, uh, on that note, let's bring today's uh, Ask Swami to a conclusion. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ramakrishna Rupanamastu